Welcome to The Culture Bar, a panel discussion podcast exploring, dissecting and shedding light on important topics in the arts and music world which matter to you. Today, we are delighted to be joined by Jasper Parrott, Harrison Parrott's co-founder and executive chairman, and Professor Anatole Levin of Georgetown University in Qatar. Professor Levin is author of Climate Change and the Nation State, The Realist Case, published this spring by Penguin. Jasper and Anatole will be discussing the UK government's so-called Rooseveltian New Deal, the importance of a Green New Deal, and how the arts and culture might be affected. Well, um, it's it's a great honour to have you um, and to be able to talk to you. Um, also, because I think you will help us enlarge our thinking about actually where our perspective about the value of uh, music and the arts in this very changing and dangerous time, how in a way we can try and um, extend its reach and its and protect it in a way from being somehow swept aside in the sort of chaos which we all expect from so many different areas of the consequences of COVID and also climate change. Um, and and how we can actually try to defend the idea that um, that the the arts and the creative uh, industries are somehow absolutely as essential as in a way uh, all of the other primary services, which of course have been so uh, correctly lauded and 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 prized in these in these uh, last uh, terrible months. Well, the idea of the Green New Deal. Uh, is of course based originally on Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal of the of the 1930s, which, in, in response, of course, to a colossal crisis of capitalism and democracy, which in parts of Europe finished off democracy, very nearly finished off democracy for good, of course. And although the legacy of the New Deal in America um, now looks very battered, it did achieve for two generations or more a hegemony over the American political and economic scene, uh, which meant that uh, in its main outlines, not just Democratic presidents, um, but uh, Republican presidents as well, Eisenhower and Nixon, you know, whatever their other faults, you know, followed the lines of the New Deal at home. Uh, Of course, in the uh, 1980s, Reagan and Thatcher in, in Britain, uh, set about demolishing as much of that as they could. Thank heavens in, in Britain, Thatcher did not go so far. In America, it went further and uh, established a, a, a new hegemony. And so since the 1980s, you've had the exact reverse. You've had Democratic presidents, Clinton and Obama, uh, to a very great extent following Republican radical free market policies. And so what I would hope to see, uh, and hence, well, not just me, and obviously so many other people, hence the phrase Green New Deal, uh, would be a comprehensive new social and economic strategy aimed at moving our economies radically away from fossil fuels, but as part of a a much broader programme of social solidarity and I would hope as well, cultural regeneration. And I've always been deeply attracted from that point of view to um, what was called in the the 1930s, the Federal Arts Project, uh, whereby the state um, 
subsidized uh, artists, writers, photographers, basically to, to go out and on the one hand, record America, uh, you know, ordinary Americans across the country, their lives. Uh, but on the other hand, this was also very much geared uh, to the idea of art in the service of society. In other words, not art for art's sake, not, you know, simply individual creativity or not, um, but an art which was, you know, explicitly supposed to enhance the life of communities. Um, and uh, obviously in the context of a Green New Deal, um, I would hope that this would also be linked to not perhaps a new idea of nature, but to uh, regenerating older ideas of the our fundamental links to nature and our duty to protect nature and the central importance of the environment, the natural environment, to hum individual human happiness and well-being and the happiness and well-being of our societies. So that, that is why the New Deal for me, you know, remains an, an image of great power and importance. Yes, I, I entirely agree. Um, and it's fascinating to me that Boris Johnson seems to want to, in a way, um, he wants to get the credit for the sort of aspirational side, but within the very uncomfortable um, sort of... Uh, squeeze which he finds himself in both in terms of the expectations of the right wing of his party and also the realities of what actually he's faced with uh, i mean i find it extraordinary that actually it should be that he should have felt it necessary to say that he was not a communist um <laughs> one of the more bizarre um you know political insecurities i've i've heard but I mean, one thing that that I, I you, what you've just said um, made me think about was that: uh, Am I right? Do you think that in the United States, for instance, the sort of idea about the the, the green side of the New Deal, or the the relationship with nature, actually carried over and continued quite a lot more strongly than we sometimes know? There were these all of these sort of communities and arts associations and training grounds for artists in sort of beautiful mountain sites. I can't remember, I saw there was one wonderful exhibition at Tate Modern about sort of textiles and about getting back to the sort of natural side of actually creating an environment and also an art form based upon nature. Mm. The Taos School, for example. That's right, exactly, yes. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, that, that's why another you know, argument of my, my book is that, um, you know, in, in the struggle against climate change um, and, you know, defence of the environment more broadly, the environmentalist camp, uh, or the left-wing environmentalist camp, you know, should not reject natural allies on narrow ideological grounds. Because, you know, there the, the have been all these warnings, you know, on the left about eco-fascism. And some of them are, are legitimate. Um, but sometimes, I mean, it seems that, you know, even the most moderate English or American conservative who loves, you know, the national landscapes of their country and, you know, wishes to preserve them, um, is somehow 
suspect and on the way to being a Nazi. Um, well, you know, the Sierra Club is not like that. Now, one may well have criticisms of the Sierra Club for its elitism and, you know, the, let's face it, very much an upper middle class organization. Um, but, I mean, if, you know, if, as I believe, climate change is a truly dire threat to the future of humanity in general, and individual countries as well, um, then, you know, this, this requires a, a collective effort. Um, and, you know, people need to prioritize the, that threat and not, of course, abandon their other differences, but, you know, put them second. And that's what priority means. And climate change for me is not just a priority, but pretty much the priority for the generations to come. Not the only one, but priority means something comes first. Well, I mean, I, I think I entirely agree with that. And it seems to me that in some ways now, with despite all of the sort of financial and other challenges, it seems to me that there is no choice. I mean, that there is there is no better time. There will be no better time, for instance, to create the opportunity for employment and for a change in society, for instance, by making it possible to replace all of the gas boilers around the country. I mean, this seems to me to be so essentially urgent and so achievable in that context. And never it'll never happen again. And mm. if we don't do it now, we will miss one of the greatest opportunities. I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, the updated paperback edition of my book coming out next year is going to you know make that case really strongly and you know I'm obviously trying to write wherever will publish me at the moment about that because absolutely you know we will need to 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 get over the effects of the pandemic we will need you know a massive program of public investment uh, and yes i mean this is the perfect opportunity to turn this you know into both uh, you know a massive job creation program which will be necessary but also to transform our economies in a green direction and of course what we must not do uh, is do um what um the um the, the bush but um, the obama administration as well did you know after the financial crisis of 2008 um which is basically just you know give the money to corporations you know flood the economy with money with no direction which unfortunately is very much what they've done again in the first tranche, you know, of um, of the, the the pandemic economic recovery act. Uh, nor, of course, but I think here we're in less danger of that. Um, you know, m- must the be um, you know must the, the recovery be followed by an austerity program, you know, as imposed by Osborne and Cameron in Britain? And that would be truly, truly catastrophic. But I, I must say, I mean, I've. Um, you know, the, the book also, of course, argues for a, a reduction of geopolitical tensions and, you know, a recognition that great powers uh, or great power rivalry is really not the biggest threat, you know, to our societies you know, and, and the state of humanity in general. And I mean, from that point of view, I think what we're seeing uh, today is positively tragic as um, in the, the U.S. government principally, but, uh, but the Democrats too in the U.S., and other governments as well, um, you know, use uh, the, the pandemic as a, a, another reason to ratchet up geopolitical tension. <laughs> My God, talk of a new Cold War when, uh, you know, in, in America, let alone anywhere else, 
the pandemic has already killed more Americans than the Korean and the Vietnam Wars put together. And they want a new Cold War? I mean, really? Well, I mean, it, 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 I, I, I agree. But, but the, speaking more domestically about also within this country, although, of course, it applies just as much to almost every other major society where, you know, industry is changing and old industries are either flagging or disappearing. And in some cases, of course, being maintained irrationally and against the principles of, of course, of climate change, so the, the, against the, the exigencies of climate change. But, you know, I was thinking back to the, the sort of the um, Mrs. Thatcher and, and, you know, in a way that the, the, the consequences of the, uh, of the reduction of all of the mining world and everything else. And it seemed to me that this was one of the very greatest failures of uh, what I would describe as the societal responsibilities of government which was that there was nothing offered in return. Uh, I mean, essentially, the only offer was that you leave, leave where you've been brought up and where your family is and go and find something which you're not trained to do in some foreign, I mean, in not, not, I don't mean abroad, but some other place. And I think that the consequences of that rest with us. And of course, that's probably one of the reasons for the, the political upheaval recently. And I wonder whether this isn't also going to repeat itself in the sense that there will be a sort of money for shiny new mobile activities, which could just as well take place in London or Manchester. But actually nothing will be done in order to foster the, uh, the genius of the various different places and what actually can be done uh, in order to restore the communities and to make a wider sense of the, uh, the satisfaction of living in uh, a more rural and a less centralised environment. Yes, I, I entirely agree. I mean, the coal mines had to be shut um, for economic reasons, but also, as we would all agree, um, for ecological reasons, you know, in the battle against climate change. Um, but the, 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 the failure uh, to look after the people who suffered, the, the entire communities, the entire regions of the country which suffered, as a result, was was morally shameful. And it's not as if, you know, uh, doing something about this is some wild, radical impossibility. If you look at what um, the Germans did uh, in the Rhineland, uh, in Nordrhein-Westfalen, after closing the coal mines there, they haven't closed them all, unfortunately, but there was a much, much greater directed effort to maintaining those communities, you know, to replacing the lost jobs. Um, and um, in the case of the coal miners uh, in, in Britain, there was a, you could say, a patriotic argument for this as well, because after all, you know, it, it was coal, unfortunately, um, but it was coal which powered the growth of the British economy originally, um, and which also, of course, powered British economy in both world wars. And uh, also, of course, if you look at the casualties of coal mining in the past, you know, the number of coal miners who died either directly, you know, from disasters, uh, or, of course, from the health effects of mining, you know, these were communities which made, I mean, you see it that way, but they made a tremendous sacrifice, you know, for, for the sake of the country. And I think it's part of you know, a sense of national moral contract uh, that the state, the community as a whole, owes something in in response. So, yes, I would say at, at present, um, politically, 
um, but also to a degree morally. It's absolutely essential um, that uh, job creation um, as, as part of the Green New Deal should go first, as far as possible, to those areas which are going to suffer as a result of the, the abandonment of fossil fuels. Uh, because, um, you know, one sometimes finds, I have to say, a somewhat disquieting feeling um, or impression. You know, we're talking to some environmentalists that basically, you know, people in West Virginia can go to hell. You know, they're all hicks and hillbillies. Yep, yep. Trump voters anyway, and we don't need to care about them. That, I think, is, you know, is fundamentally wrong. We need to to try to look after these people as part of the program. I mean, for good cynical yeah. political reasons as well. Yeah. Um, and what you just said made me think that, um, uh, you know, there's all this um, discussion at the moment about statues and everything else. And, uh, but on the other hand, one could make a case for that the three uh, crucial elements in the building of the uh, British economy and empire were uh, slavery, coal and opium. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it's, it's not a very admirable tri- trinity of 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 uh, of uh, things. And and actually, of course, what I feel is the the fact that you know after after that there has been so little in the sense of again responsibility for the damage that that has been caused and the sort of sense of recognition, if you like, of, of uh, how things could be done and should be done better and differently. Um, there's one, one point I would very much like to talk to you about because you, in in your writings, you you've been uh, I think if I if I don't misunderstand you, you have been quite a strong advocate for what I would describe as the national unit, and in a way through it the sense of I don't know whether you describe it as patriotism or of uh, engagement with your own community as opposed to the other uh, and. Um, uh, I have to say, I feel very differently about that. It may be to do with how I was brought up and where I was born and my early life, et cetera, et cetera. But, and, and also perhaps a little bit um, cynically, I'm reminded of um, what Samuel Johnson uh, uh, said. Last refuge uh, of the scoundrel. That's right, exactly. Although he was rather more polite about the patriot as opposed to patriotism in his dictionary, where he described it about somebody who loved his country. Um, but um, at the same time, uh, I mean, I do worry desperately about the fact that there is um, uh, this sort of cult at the moment of the idea of the of of us against the other, and that I think that uh, one of the victims of that um, is also, of course, the cultural world and the creative world, and and I'm one of the few remaining old timers who was actively involved in the pre single you know the mobility of labor of uh, when it came in and and i remember so so clearly how uh, negative this was of the, all of the the quotas and the permits and the bureaucracy and the negativity about the other and you know just having seen what an incredible flowering has come uh, right across Europe and indeed the world, but particularly between Britain and Europe, um, and how much we have gain- gained from access to a much more generously funded 
uh, uh, market and and activity than 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 we have ourselves. Um, it 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 is terrifying to me because the politicians of the day and the civil servants of the day, none of them experienced that. They don't remember that. They don't know about it. Yeah, I mean, like you, I regarded Brexit, of course, as a catastrophe. Um, it should be remembered, though, that you know the the, the vote for Brexit. I mean, absurdly, um, in logical terms, but was very heavily driven um, by anxiety about immigration. So one can't, you know, one cannot simply ignore the the fears, you know, that, that exist. Or if one does, one's liable to pay a terrible political price. I mean, on the patriotism business, I mean, what I always say is, I mean, except for the environmentalist side and climate change, which obviously didn't exist or rather wasn't seen as a threat then. I mean, I'm basically a, a mid 20th century social democrat, Labour Party, if you if you will. And um, I always point out to people that, um, uh, you know, Clement Attlee would not have seen patriotism as in any way a dirty word or a bad thing, um, nor would anyone have blamed Clement Attlee or his whole generation for being patriots. You know, th- this was seen as something that a progressive social democrat, moderate socialist could could perfectly well be, uh, without, of course, implying that, that this, you know, involved chauvinist hostility uh, to anywhere else, um, racism, I mean, of course, there was a lot of racism around, but it wasn't, you know, inherently tied to that. Um, and so uh, I, I, would, um, I would say that there, that there is the possibility, you know, in the progressive tradition, of patriotism in the sense of a particular attachment to your own society and above all and I think this is critical a, a sense of responsibility to your own society a primary sense of responsibility which, which does not in fact imply uh, hostility to others or let alone my god an aggressive you know external program I mean the reason I, I stress responsibility is that by the way I mean I should say that this is a position that I, I myself you know um, came to somewhat unwillingly um, but I think two things one I have been struck I must say you know during my time first as a student uh, uh, living in different countries you know th- then as a, a journalist a foreign correspondent for many years um, and then, you know, as an international researcher, I have been struck by the immense gulf between Western language of responsibility for other parts of the world, and in so many cases, the radical lack of a real sense of responsibility. Um, because, you know, in the end, these places are far away. People don't know much about them. Uh, they don't understand them, that's for sure. Um, but also, it must be said, you know, including some of our aid officials, they they cannot really be bothered, you know, to go and really live there and understand them, at least if this is going to involve, you know, real sacrifices and risks. Whereas I do feel that there is more of a chance of pinning people to a real sense of responsibility, in other words, a sense of responsibility which involves action, uh, when it comes to their own societies. And one can also judge them accordingly. Uh, Whereas, you know, if, um, I mean, how many of us really could judge in practical terms, you know, the the effects of British aid in other parts of the world? Well, partly because it's been been much too small to do any real 
So I, I think I think you make a very very good point, and I think you know there's there, there's certain things which actually I think one laments the passing of. Also, although there was of course I suppose some element of old colonialist attitudes, but um, uh, the the whole program which when I was growing up of uh, of uh, being able to go away for a year and working in Africa or in India or wherever in support of some local community or what it is or adding additional value as a teacher or whatever it is. I can't even remember what the program was called, but um, it seemed to me to be something that did an enormous amount in also making people understand better how other people lived and, and also what their aspirations were and what their qualities were in terms of their own local uh, integration with also the environment, which of course in many cases in Britain, post-war war years, people had very little sense of. So I, I agree with you very much that we we should be careful about just being superficial in sensing, seeing that we are sort of having a an internationalism and that we should indeed take care of what we have at home. I remember what you were talking about, um, uh, Atlee, but, uh, you know, uh, Jenny Lee was by far, I think, the most visionary um, sort of what you might call cultural secretary and who did things and achieved things, even though she had no personal sort of engagement with many of the things that she did. She just knew it was really essential for yeah. society. Yes, exactly. She, she had a, a deep social sense, you know, and, and a sense of, of how the arts could contribute to, yes, I mean, society, to the community. Okay. Um, that, you know, I, I do feel, you know, in an era of dead sheep, uh, you know, Damien Hurst and company and Jeremy Coons, um, restoring some of that um, in the world of the arts is, you know, a sense of responsibility to your society and just to well not just to your society but to humanity you know to do something for people is really important uh, and it gives i mean it's, i think i think it's not only important to society but i also think it gives a it gives a real focus as well to art and literature um which otherwise is perhaps liable to just you know wander off into um uh, well at best personal obsessions but of course some um, uh, rather more into uh, Saatchi and company you know not not art for art's sake but art for um, plutocracy's sake art for speculation's sake yeah yeah no i mean i think i think also with regard to you know the green New Deal and the idea of climate change. Um, I think that, and I think there are very strong parallels with the creative world of music and the arts and actually of education. I think that, that we have a, a, a very depressed, I mean, it's not only in this country, and maybe it's also because there is a lack of responsibility again, but we have such a, an astounding lack of leadership and lack of actually willingness of people who are in a sense, the primary agents, if you like, for advocating the values, how timid they are, how little they stand out. I mean, I've been so um, frustrated by this in the uh, since middle of March, is how few, you know, people who have power of communication, how few people have stood up and said, you know, this is something which is absolutely as important in our society as anything else. And people are afraid to say that because they think somehow that by doing so that one 
diminishes the importance of the of the front line in the in the health service and care and i find that such a com completely uh, ridiculous and and uh, uh, argument and uh, actually one of the thoughts that i had which i think is also very much related in my sense of uh, the the world with this green new deal is that it's a a sort of sad irony or tragedy that one of the greatest movements for changing society which was this El Sistema movement in Venezuela, which, I mean, really transformed the lives of hundreds of thousands of poor people and of people who had no sense of their own capability to do better. And that this great enterprise should now, of course, have sort of, in a way, lost its way and lost its, its, its coherence and its credibility because it's in this degraded society of 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 uh, madura and i think somehow we need to get back to that which i think comes back to your sense of responsibility because if we build responsibility for our society which is also then building the society for the people who are our own um, uh, contemporaries who come from abroad who come from different waves of migration and immigration and everything else if we can include them and if we can include the people who are who never have that otherwise the opportunity if we can do that then i think that is actually part of a very powerful green new deal yes and uh, i mean it must obviously be said uh, for for britain that any sense of british patriotism or english if it comes down to that which i hope it won't um and uh a sense of a collective national culture must, of course, in future, be multiracial. It cannot not be. You know, it must have, and it must have very strong elements of cultural pluralism. And the, the trick somehow, of course, is to combine that with, at the same time, you know, a sense of what's been called a community of fate, that, you know, we're all in, in the same boat, irrespective of our origins. You know, we have a... Yeah ability to to keep it afloat to bail to plug the holes yes and i mean what i would very much like to see you know, as part of any green new deal is is obviously um a massive program of um building of of parks i mean one of the great types of artists we need for the future um are the the new capability brands but now not you know uh, designing parks for aristocrats, but for the people in general. And, and programs of, of um, reforestation, which will not simply plant endless rows of pine trees so that they can be more easily cut down and turned into wood pulp, um, but will be you know, designed to restore and enhance our landscapes. I, I think you, are, you couldn't be more right. And I think that in some ways, uh, you know, the, there is a lot of debate about the uh, vulnerability at the moment and also maybe some of the wrong turns that the, uh, the um, uh, South Bank Centre has taken. And yet I think that the South Bank Centre in its own way is one of the most advanced experiments in, if you like, um, offering participation to everybody in the arts. And in a way, we need to think about our parks in a similar way they ought to be the sort of playgrounds and the sort of theaters and the and the and the inspirations and also the access to nature i mean we all so many of us i mean i've been in 98 
daily morning walks at six o'clock in the morning around uh, Chiswick area. And I have never had such a wonderful set of contact with, you know, birds and flowers and nature and, and the feeling of, 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 of the value of these things. So um, uh, I think that the, I, I love that idea. I really do think that's very, very important. And I think also the conversion of obsolete buildings and of the a new thinking about what buildings should be. Uh, um, I'm going to participate in a very interesting meeting in Oslo in September with the people who come from Snohetta, the Norwegian architects who built the most wonderful opera there. But they are, and I have been talking a little bit about why are we still doing things which are basically 19th century middle-class temples? Why are we yeah. not thinking and re reimagining what are the creative spaces of the future, uh, which will people, which will enable people to feel well in them and to sort of want to be a part of them? That's also, I think, part of the the Green Deal. In, in Sweden, but now, of course, I can't remember its name, um, uh, north of Stockholm, uh, there's a, a wonderfully restored factory, which has been turned into, not just, you know, a showcase for art, but the whole factory has been turned into a work of art, you know, a glorious mass, you know, experience. Yes, absolutely. And um, in America, it is... I mean, quite apart from the, the, the dreadful social picture of the, the hollowing out of you know, urbanism, um, it is tragic to see these urban landscapes, you know, with these, um, in some, you know, I mean, very Victorian, but often very grand, actually, and sometimes even beautiful public buildings. Uh, and yes, these huge abandoned factories, which, of course, cost so much to build. I mean, so much went into them, not just in terms of money, but also in terms of, you know, the, the work of the people who worked there. And now they are, all that human effort, you know, from the past is just being allowed to, to, to rot away because economic tides have changed. And yes, I mean, that creates a, a fantastic opportunity for it does. I mean, I think I think that one of the great work, and also in this country, but also one of the great opportunities, again, which comes as we were talking about earlier, about how we must sort of, in a way, invest in the change in the in the in the provision of energy. So we should invest in. I mean, uh, car parks. I mean, how many car parks are there going to be which are going to be useless and obsolete? Those car parks could be made into the most wonderful facilities for so much that would be positive in our society. So, I mean, there ought to be, a, you know, uh, Boris Johnson is talking about infrastructure and spending money. There ought to be a ministry of, a, a sort of ministry of, of reimagining. Mm. Uh, because... I, mean, mm. I was thinking, you know, as well, that, um, you know, tower blocks and council estates in Britain got such a bad name. And that was partly, of course, because so many of them were shoddily built, sometimes with tragic results. But also, I mean, if you look at the way their surroundings were, were, were landscaped, what, once again, I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic comic and it's, it's just well, sheer incompetence apart from anything else. You know, spaces that nobody can actually use, spaces that are not spaces, either, either aesthetic or social spaces. And... I mean, I don't know how much it would have good it would have done, but if there had been an attempt to set, you know, the to to use the space created by tower blocks, which 
you know, given the size of modern populations, unfortunately, we do need. But to surround them with true spaces, you know, of, well, aristocratic parks for the people once again, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you, if you, did, if you, have you ever been, you've never been to Brasilia, have you? No, no, I haven't. Uh, well, you know, of course, this was Neumeyer's absolute, Niemeyer's absolute idea. And, and of course, in the end, of course, there were big compromises. But I have to say, when I went there, well, now uh, 40 years ago, it was breathtaking. It was breathtaking in its, in its sense of, of aspiration. And of course, you could say Bauhaus too. I mean, I went recently to Detmold and I saw some of those ideas. And, Again, it comes down to this business of where are we going to find the people who are going to create the leadership and the and the and the ideas and the bravery. This is what I miss so so much. And uh, anyway, um, I, I I have to say it's very inspiring to hear you talk, and I hope that maybe we can find some opportunity to share some, you know, some. But maybe we can contribute in some way to something useful together. I would really much hope that would be possible. I, I would love that. And also, you know, that uh, when all this is over, we can um, we can meet in person. That would be great. Yes. Do Thank you very in- much. It's been a great privilege to have you on this first of our pods and look forward for the future. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Bye.